Romans 5. We prevailed upon the first four and a half verses, and we pick it up really in verse 5. If you have indeed come to Christ, you probably remember the day that you did it, or the night that you did it. Can you think back right now in your mind's eye to what it was like when you gave your life to Christ, when you invited, when you received Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you remember the feeling? Some have dramatic feelings, some don't. But I do specifically remember the burden of guilt that was lifted and the, and the resultant joy from that decision to follow Jesus Christ. I didn't quite know how to describe it because it was foreign. I mean, it wasn't something that I had done up to that point. I lived in the world. I didn't want to get involved with religious people. I didn't like most of the Christians I had met. And uh, here I was in my brother's apartment in San Jose, having received Christ. And I knew that God touched me. But I didn't quite know how to describe it. And when I went back down to Southern California and I found a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a while, the first question he asked me, and he was trying to evangelize me, not knowing that I had come to Christ, he looked at me and said, Have you been born again? And, and I lit up. I said, where'd you get that phrase? That's a perfect description of what has happened to my life. And he was kind of stunned when I said that. He said, well, Jesus said it, which made it even more awesome that Jesus used that phrase to describe what happens when a person makes Jesus Christ the Lord. You're born again. It's like a brand new start. And the result of that justification is peace. That's what verse 1 is all about in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified, and if you remember, that's a, a term that's used a lot in the New Testament, 30 times to be exact, 15 times in the book of Romans. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been acquitted. When you come to Christ, you've been declared righteous. Does it mean that you are, in practice, righteous, but God declares you as such? The word that we have used is he imputes it to you. He declares and then he treats you as if you are righteous. And, and we gave a definition. It's somewhat simplistic, but it's great for our purposes to define justified. And that is just if I'd never sinned. That's how you're treated. Just if I'd never sinned. Even though you have, we know this about you, we know this about all of us, God declares you and sees you and treats you just as if you had never sinned. And because of that, we have peace. Now, what if we weren't justified by faith? Well, we wouldn't have peace. What if justification depended on my works? Well, I'll tell you the truth. If justification depended on my works, some days I would have peace, some days I wouldn't have peace. Some days, because I've read my chapters and witnessed to that person and prayed long and hard, I feel so peaceful. But the days that I haven't, I wouldn't if I was justified based on what I had done rather than on what he has accomplished. So that now that it's based on what he has accomplished, the result is peace. I have peace inwardly. I have peace positionally. Forensically, you might say, I've been declared righteous, and positionally, the war is over. I have peace with God. Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. This is where we left off last time, or as the King James says, patience. And perseverance, or patience, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The love of God, the love of God, it says in verse 5, has been poured out in our hearts. Now this is not the love of God that we have. This is not our love for God. This is the love that belongs to God wherewith he loves us. The greatest 
miracle or the greatest, most astonishing truth of the gospel is that holy, righteous God loves unholy, unrighteous, failing, sinful people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's still great charm in that verse. We should never get tired of hearing that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love that God has for sinful people. And it's important to realize that this is love God initiated. And we're going to see tonight, while we were ungodly, unrighteous, God loved us. It's not like um, we cleaned up our act and showed God what we're really made of. And that that just happened to be good. You know, we fanned the flame of goodness and God said, Look, there's a good person. I must love that person. Not at all. There is no cause in you. For God to love you. The cause lies wholly in the one who pours out or demonstrates that love. For God so loved the world. He initiates, we respond. We love him because he first loved us. I've always been intrigued by the fairy tale of the beautiful princess who kissed the ugly toad who just happened to be a prince that had been cursed and now because of the wicked witch or however it goes is now this ugly toad. And I've often thought about how great it would be to be the toad. You're a little toad, green, smelly, ugly, you know, on a pond. I don't know if somebody went, like, you like, what, they're beautiful? If you collect frogs, forgive me, but I think they're ugly. But what a great day it would be to be an ugly frog to be kissed by a beautiful princess. Wow. She's coming closer. She's going to do it. But imagine being the beautiful princess and stooping down to pick up the slimy, smelly frog and plant your beautiful lips on the forehead of that frog. (laughs) Much more is the condescension of holy, loving God to love sinful man. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The word poured out is a lavish outpouring because the love of God is not measured out in incremental drops, but you have to picture a waterfall. That's the idea. Lavish, abundant pouring out of the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember on the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus stood in the temple and cried out at their ceremony. He said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. For out of his innermost beings shall flow torrents of living water. And then what does it say? This he spoke concerning his Holy Spirit, which was not yet given. The Holy Spirit, as is mentioned here, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. True love is never passive. True love is always active. God demonstrates love by sending his son. And love in any relationship is never passive. Love that is true love seeks an outward demonstration, an outlet. We often see marriages that have degenerated. And people come to a point where they go, we don't love each other anymore. Funny, because a few years before that, they promised to love each other till death do they part. They made a commitment, a choice, not to go by feelings, but to make a choice to demonstrate love to one another till death do they part. Not till debt do they part. Not until feelings do they part. Death, that's a long time. But love often degenerates. Because there is no outward demonstration. It remains passive. It's deteriorated into a legal and a formal relationship. There's not this lavish supply. God lavishly supplied his love, and the greatest demonstration of that was his son on the cross. There's a lot of demonstrations of God's love. One is creation. The environment, the house, the universe that God gave you to live in. The body that 
reflects design. In so many ways, God has demonstrated his love, the way he provides for us. But the ultimate demonstration is that he sent his best, his only son, to come to this earth to die on a cross. It's, a, it's an amazing love. It's amazing grace, as we so often sing. So the hope, these things are produced by being justified by faith. The hope that all of this produces does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. You get his point. Nobody would die for a murderer. A murderer who is convicted of doing wrong. Let's, let's say there's a, a serial killer. You don't read of somebody going, tell you what, don't give him the death penalty. I would gladly take it for him. I know he's guilty, but I might as well do it. It would even be rare for someone to give his life for a person who is righteous. But, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what makes God's love so unique and unparalleled is because while we were ungodly, while we were undeserving, Christ died for us. What if God only loved good people? Where would that leave us? Out in the cold. But the uniqueness of God's love, the reason it is so unique and unparalleled is because he did it when? Not when we were righteous, not when we did good works, not when we proved or demonstrated that we're worthy of being loved while we were sinners. This is important because he's going to build on this fact and he's going to argue from lesser to greater through the rest of this chapter. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I realize how hard this is for us to relate to because we don't love like this in the natural human realm. In the natural human realm, we love that which is attractive to us. When it doesn't become attractive to us any longer, we start not loving that thing or that person. That is human nature. We generally love those who love us, who reciprocate our love. When somebody shuns our love, we go, well, fine. Forget it then. But this is the love of God. And if God loved us like that, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? Charles Hodge, a theologian, wrote, If God loved us because we loved him, we would, he would only love us so long as we loved him. And on that condition, and then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. Our hearts are treacherous. They're deceitful above everything else who can know it. But God's Love toward us is constant. Even when we're faithless, Paul wrote to Timothy, he remains faithful. I draw your attention back to a little phrase in verse 6. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Another translation says, in a suitable time or at an appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. I parallel that verse with Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 familiar verse that says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time, and here the phrase, at the suitable time or in due time. One thing that I have noticed about the life of Jesus in reading the Gospels is that he was always exactly on time. He was not a man who was behind the times. He was not a man even who was ahead of his times. He was someone who was perfect in his timing. He often spoke about the time has not come or my time is not yet. The wedding feast of Cana when Mary came to Jesus and said, they ran out of wine, like do something, do your miracle, do your stuff. He said, woman, my time has not yet come. In John chapter 17, 
And he prays to his father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He kept perfect timing. We see in prophecy that even Jesus coming into Jerusalem, according to Daniel chapter 9, was exactly to the day that was predicted. And so in due time, or in the fullness of time, Christ came. I believe that Jesus Christ was just right on time in three ways. First of all, religiously. Religiously, it was the perfect time for him to come. The Messiah could have been born at any period of time in history, but why that time? Because religiously, there were some unique things happening. Number one, the polytheism, or the worship of many gods, that was picked up by the Greeks and the Romans, started getting old. People were suspicious of the religious systems of the Greeks and the Romans. Their hearts were hungry. They were very unsatisfied with the worship system. They yearned for more. There was this growing sense of uh, instability in those religious systems. And, and also, among the Jews, by the time of Christ, virtually every synagogue that was planted in the inhabited world had a copy of the Scriptures, so that the Scriptures were available in the Jewish community to every Jew, which meant the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah were there. And they read them and they heard them preached on and there was this religious anticipation that the Messiah was going to come. Secondly, I believe it was the right time culturally for Jesus to come. It was at a very interesting time when the world was becoming unified, you might say. People were becoming educated. Education was on the rise. And there was a common language. The language was what? Koine was the Greek language, the common Greek. Because Alexander the Great, who years before had conquered the world, had a dream, a vision, that he would Hellenize or impose Greek culture, customs, language on every single place in the world. And he conquered the world by age 31. The Greeks ruled the world. They imposed a Hellenistic Greek language and culture on the world. Now, why was that important? Because now you could go anywhere and speak the same language. You could communicate. Not only that, but the Roman Empire, which was politically in charge, was at the apex of its government. They brought in an enforced peace, worldwide peace, known as Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. It was an enforced peace. Romans uh, established a vast army of legions everywhere, every place that they conquered at least, and they would keep the peace. Added to that was the Roman road system. Now, I personally am amazed at the Romans' capability of building. Here, we still have dirt roads in this civilized culture of ours. 2,000 years ago, the Romans paved their roads, and you can still walk on the pavement today. It's not asphalt, it's stone, hewn stones that were dug and moved for hundreds, thousands of miles. They were aggressive. They pulled it off. Which meant that people not only had a common language, but could travel worldwide within the Roman Empire, speaking this common language, which meant the gospel could be communicated in the exactness of the Greek language, the universal language, the lingua franca of the empire, and travel to places all over. Third, I believe it was the right time not only culturally, not only religiously, but prophetically. Prophetically. This we know for sure from the scripture. But I just want to give you a little story. The Jews always believed in the Messiah, that he would come. We know that. Uh, the, the Orthodox Jew used to pray every day. In fact, they still do today in many places. I believe in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he tarries, yet I will wait for him every coming day. Though that was always the prayer and expectation within Judaism, just prior and up to the time of Jesus Christ, there was a national Jewish intensity and expectation that the Messiah should come imminently. That's why when John the Baptist was down at the Jordan River baptizing people, the first question the leaders asked him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? 
They wouldn't ask him that question unless there was this fervent expectation. One of the reasons was the story I'm about to tell you. Back in Genesis chapter 49, the 10th verse, there's an interesting prophecy. It says, The scepter, the right to rule, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word scepter is the right of tribal authority, the right to impose the law of Moses, to uphold the law of Moses, even the death penalty, which was part of the law of Moses when it was broken. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. And rabbis, since ancient times, ascribed the word Shiloh to the Messiah. That is the Messiah, they said. So they interpreted it this way. The right of tribal authority to impose the law of Moses, tribal sovereignty, shall not depart from the tribe of Judah, in which is Jerusalem and the temple, etc., until the Messiah comes. Problem. In the first half of the first century, B.C., or the time of Christ, the, the first quarter of that century, the Romans came in, took over the world, took over Judea, took over Israel, imposed their law, took away from the tribe of Judah, even the Sanhedrin, the priests, the right to uphold Jewish law, even in their own vicinity, even in the temple. So that if someone deserved capital punishment, they couldn't impose it. That's why they had to go to the Roman government to get Jesus crucified. As soon as the Romans came in and took away their sovereignty, the Talmud, the Jewish book, the holy book of the Jews, tells us that the Sanhedrin, which is the 70 ruling elders, the body, the judicial legislative body of the Jews, put ashes on their heads, sackcloth on their bodies, and paraded around Jerusalem, and they said this, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, but the Messiah has not come. Now, while they were having their parade in the streets of Jerusalem, wailing the fact that the Messiah had not come, in the streets of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter was growing up. And within a few short years, he would ride into Jerusalem and be proclaimed, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as their Messiah. Shiloh had come. It was the right time, in due time, perfect timing, God sent his son. And from that point on, the gospel has gone forth. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That is great news. That's the future. Because he took the wrath on himself, we're going to be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You get the gist of this passage. If he loved us when we were creeps, don't you think he loves us more now that we're kids of his? Now why is it then that we can have faith to come to Christ, but then once we're children of God we live in fear and trepidation. Oh, God's getting me. God loved you when you were a sinner. And if you were reconciled by his death, if we were enemies reconciled to God, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If his death accomplished so much, now that he's risen from the dead and alive, much more. Now that Jesus has risen from the dead, we know that in one sense his work is finished, and in another sense it's not finished. His work of atonement is finished. We call that the finished work of Christ, but he's still working. There is an unfinished work that is perpetually going on right now. It says he is able to save to the uttermost, Hebrews 7, those that come to God through him, for he ever lives to make intercession for us. Right now he's making intercession for you. He's praying for you. He's rooting for you. He's at the right hand of the Father. The accuser of the brethren may accuse you. You're acquitted by the blood of the Son, the Lamb of God. 
much more now that he is alive. Now, the word wrath, we're not going to pick the word wrath apart, but the concept is important. We shall be saved from wrath through him. There's a preposition before the word wrath, from. In the Greek word, it's apo, apo, A-P-O, or alpha, pi, omega, if you're writing it out in Greek. But it's A-P-O, apo, which means away from. We are saved away from wrath, which means we won't make any contact with the wrath of God. Salvation means that he saves us in time and eternity from his wrath. Why is that important? Because the proposition tells us a lot. It's consistent with the rest of the scripture. Some people say there's a tribulation coming on the earth. And we're going to go as Christians through the tribulation period. Now God will insulate us through it. But we're going to go through it. We're going to be here on the earth when the tribulation comes. Now I'm not saying that uh, the world isn't going to get tough. I believe it's going to get tough and tougher as times go on. But anyone who would say that would reveal their ignorance of two things. The nature of the tribulation and the nature of God. The nature of the tribulation is its wrath from God poured out upon the earth. And people will say, yeah, but Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Exactly my point. There's a difference between the nature of the tribulation that comes from the world system versus the nature of the tribulation that comes from God, which is his wrath upon the Christ-rejecting earth. We're all going to have trials. We're all going to have tribulation. We'll all suffer persecution. And the source of that is from Satan, the world, the world system against the believer. But when it comes to the wrath from God, Christians are kept apo from the wrath that is to come in time and eternity. Jesus promised to the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Verse 11, not only that. You know, there's more. It keeps getting better. He's arguing from less to greater. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So not only the future, but right now, great cause for joy, for rejoicing. Now in verse 12, beginning in verse 12, there's a repeated phrase that I draw your attention to, and that's the phrase, one man. Let's read uh, verses 12 through 17, then we'll go back and make a few comments. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. What can one person do? Uh, think back in history to individuals who made a difference. Albert Einstein and his theory of relativity uh, Thomas Edison and his incandescent filament, uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, one man made a difference. Then on the reverse, think of the damage one man could do, Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Timothy McVeigh, a few names that cause us to cringe when we hear them because one man wrecked a lot of havoc. One man could take a match and light it destroy things, destroy homes, destroy a forest. 
Another man could light a match and use it as a candle to lead people out of darkness. It just depends on who uses it. We have a comparison now between one man, Adam, and one man, Jesus. One man really blew it for all of us, got us into this mess. In fact, this section answers the question, how did we get into this mess? Is it the Republicans' fault? Is it the Democrats' fault? Is it the United Nations? No, it's one man, and his name is Adam. But all that Adam did, Jesus undid, much more is the point of this section. So two men, two actions, two results. That's the point that he is making. Disobedience of one, obedience of the other. Death through one, life through the other. Brings up an issue I just kind of want to touch on. Here we are studying the scriptures. Book of Romans. We have Bibles. We look at it. We nod to it. Hopefully we agree with it. Even more than that, I hope you live your lives by it. But we read here, Adam. And we're compelled to ask, was there a real Adam? Was Adam a historical figure? Or isn't it best, Skip, to see Adam as a myth, a mythical figure, an ideal, an idea? Primitive man's evolutionary idea deposited through the centuries. Here's his primitive idea of an original man, an original woman, special creation, you know, taken out of the rib. And come on, we know by now in this enlightened society that we evolved. And that there is no special creation. And if there's no special creation, there's no creator. And you can go on. If there's no creator, there's no God. And this is where many depart from Christianity at the whole issue of Adam and Eve and origins and creation or evolution. Many depart from it. Marxism departs from Christianity. The basis of Marxism is the evolutionary theory. The basis of communism, the basis of atheism. No special creation. And so one would ask, how did we get here? It was a fortuitous set of accidental circumstances. Just sort of, wow, here we are. Amazing kind of happened. I've always liked to go back to an old axiom. Wherever there is a thing, there must have been a preceding thought. And wherever there is a thought, there must be someone to think that thought. And so we apply that to something like this auditorium. The auditorium looks as if it has symmetry and design. And it's pretty amazing, actually, as a feat of engineering to have something 40 feet tall and this big that is free span without all sorts of columns buttressing it up throughout uh, the inner core. It's just this free span uh, engineered. Now, A, after millions of years, this building oozed out of the ground <laughs> upon which we sit. Or, by special creation... It was developed, engineered, and built. And I can prove the latter. I have the blueprints. I know the architect. He goes to our fellowship. I watched him draw out things and put all this thing that was once a shell together. It was designed. Then I go from this building to something far more complex like the human body. And for me to believe that it evolved would take far more blind faith than for me to believe in special creation. Because in my body there are 30 trillion cells. And in each cell are millions of components within the nucleus of each cell. It's like Manhattan inside the nucleus of each cell. Things are being exchanged, things are being uh, transmitted, received, uh, all sorts of activities going on, and it, within each nucleus there's 23 pairs of chromosomes, that genetic coded material uh, scrunched up together on that thin little band. And the genetic material, the DNA, dictates how each cell will function from the moment of conception to expiration, from birth to death. If I were to take one of my cells and take the genetic material, the DNA, and translate it into written instruction, written information. 
one cell would produce the equivalent of 4,000 volumes of written information, which roughly, for a visual, would encompass this stage, which is 18 feet deep by 50 feet wide or 55 feet wide, all the way up to the top of that arch. 4,000 good-sized volumes coded information. If I were to take 30 trillion of my cells, roughly, give or take a few billion, but 30 trillion is the average, and translate the genetic material, the coded material, into written form, I would be able to fill the Grand Canyon with the amount of books 40 times. How big is the Grand Canyon? It's a mile deep, three and 20 miles across, a couple hundred miles long. I'd be able to fill it 40 times. An amazing, more complex structure than this auditorium. And to say, well, it is pretty fabulous, fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstances. I've got to admit, it's, a, it's quite a coincidence how it all happened. Really. You believe that? In the face of the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, which says things don't tend toward higher order but less order. They tend to decay. They tend to lose energy. They tend to lose heat. They become more disorganized. Things break down. They don't build up naturally. Design. Uh, also, I, I just have to underscore this because if you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ but you don't believe in creation, I have a real problem with how you follow Jesus Christ. Because Jesus spoke of Adam and Eve and creation. In fact, when he was confronted with the divorce issue and why Moses gave a certificate of divorce, he said he did it because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning of creation, it was not so. For from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he simply repeated the Genesis account. The beginning of what? Creation. Was there a real Adam? Oh, yes. And there was also real sin and real consequences and a real Savior that came to deal with that real problem. And that is the real point of what Paul is getting across here. There are four stages I want you to look at uh, that are mentioned in these um, verses. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered, that's stage one, the world, and death through sin, that's stage two, and thus death spread, that's stage three, because all sinned. And then look at verse 17, or if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, that's stage four. Sin entered, death entered, death spread, death reigned. Those are the stages of fallen mankind from the beginning. So, how did it happen? Through Adam. Now, it doesn't mean that sin originated with Adam. This is important. It didn't originate with Adam, but it says sin entered through Adam. That is, it entered the human realm. Where did sin originate? Satan. He was the one, First John says, that sinned from the beginning. But it entered the human realm in Genesis chapter 3 with whom? Who's the first one to fall? Okay, then why does it say through Adam? Isn't that interesting? Here it says, through Adam, this one man, it's repeated over and over again. Though Eve disobeyed first, the primary responsibility lies on Adam. Why? Because number one, God gave him the direct command not to touch or not to partake of the fruit. The direct command was given to him. Second, he was the head of that relationship. And he should have insisted, no, we're going to obey God. But he didn't. He was kind of a weasel. And all he could say is, well, it's the woman you gave me, she did it. <laughs> he wouldn't even take responsibility for it. But the buck really stopped with him. So, how do we get into this mess? Was it the Republicans? Was it the Democrats? Was it the UN? No, he was actually an independent. <laughs> One man, there was no political party might have had democratic leanings, but it was one man. You can strike that from the record. It was in jest to all of my friends on the other side. But you know, it's interesting that uh, as we follow this through, we're dealing with a number of issues. First of all, creation, Adam, and how 
we originated. And, and just as carnal man tries to blow off the whole idea of there being a special creation, Adam and Eve, sinful carnal mankind also tries to dismiss the whole idea of sin entering and all people being responsible because one man, Adam, sinned against God. In fact, a prevailing philosophy, along with evolution, is social evolution. The man started as a savage, but man is morally pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. And as time goes on, man is bettering himself. He's slowly rising from the slime and conquering the earth with values and morals. And all I can say is you have to never read a newspaper or see a news broadcast to believe that. Because there have been more victims of war in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. One out of seven people claim that they have been touched by a major crime in our country. It's been estimated that one out of five lose their virginity by age 13. One out of seven people in our country carry a gun to protect themselves, and we're getting better? Sin entered. Death entered. Sin spread, or death spread, and then death reigned. For if by one man's offense death reigned, verse 17, through the one much more, those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to, for a moment, in our minds, you don't have to turn to it, the Genesis account. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, man was made in the image of God. Special creation. There is no creature on earth like mankind. He's in the image. He's imago dei. He is in the likeness or in the image of God. Volitionally, he has the right to choose between good and evil. He can discern what is right and what is wrong. He has a conscience. He has a will. He can create. He can better himself. No other creature has a heart to love God, a will to obey God a mind to know the will of God. In the garden, in the beginning, God gave our first parents, as we call them, um, two commands, sort of. Boiled it down to two commands, positive and negative. We often just focus on the negative. God said, don't do that. But first, God gave them a positive command. Of all of the trees you shall freely eat. Go through the garden, man. Rule the earth. Have a great time. There is only one prohibition God subjugated man under. There was to submit to one area. There is a tree. Leave it alone. That was the only thing. But everything else he had free reign to do. It was a great place. Great place to hang out. But we know the story. Eve and Adam both sinned. And when they made that choice to disobey God, sin entered his life. And from that point on, there generated a constitutional change within Adam so that every single person after Adam is affected with a sin nature. Indeed, David admitted that. I was conceived in sin, in iniquity I was brought forth. We are by nature, said Paul, the children of wrath, even as others. That's how we are by nature. So when we're born, and I know how cute babies look, you look at him and go, God, oh, what a perfect child. That little beautiful child has the capacity to light the match and destroy or to light the match and lead people out of darkness. That little child could grow up to be an Abraham Lincoln or an Adolf Hitler. There is a human nature. There are bents within that humanity. If left untouched, uncurved, undealt with, will wreak havoc upon this society. It's the sin nature. Now, look at the first part of verse 17. By one man's offense, death reigned, or literally held sway over mankind through the one. Man, that's, that's, a, that's a bad deal, in a sense. Because that means that everyone born after Adam, though we haven't done what Adam did, we all have died. There is spiritual separation and there will be physical death for every person who is born dies. Physical death and spiritual death apart from spiritual life, which 
being born again means. You're born again. You're spiritually reborn. You have a relationship with God. And so you only die once physically, but you'll never die twice physically and spiritually. What this means practically, men, is every time you sweat and your back aches because you've worked, Adam did that. And women, every time you give birth to a child, and I, I hear, I wouldn't know, but I hear that the pain is, as Bill Cosby said, it's like pulling your bottom lip over your head. <laughs> Stretching of the body and the pain, the intense suffering. You can thank Eve for that. Adam and Eve that brought the sin into the world. And what that means theologically, we've already discussed it, is depravity. That is one of the cardinal doctrines of the New Testament, of the Bible, that man is born depraved. Depraved. I want to underscore what that means. It does not mean the word depraved. It sounds very harsh. We don't like depraved. I'm not depraved. I may be bad, but not depraved. No, you're depraved. And what that means is not that you are as bad as you can possibly be. It means that you are as bad off as you can possibly be. This is God's estimation of man, not man's estimation of man. God's estimation of man is you are as bad off as you can possibly be apart from Christ. Hence the need for a Savior. Born in depravity, needing the salvation. One man brings depravity, the other, Jesus Christ, can bring salvation. That should shed light then in the conversation that the disciples and Jesus had when Jesus said, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go get into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples said, well, well then who can be saved? Jesus said, it's impossible with man. But with God, what? All things are possible. Well, who can be saved? It's impossible with man. This should forever close the door on, I'm going to be saved by my own works. You could never do anything enough to be good enough to get out of that being as bad off, the depravity of man. It's like the man at the pool of Bethesda, remember what he said to Jesus? He said, you know, I'm waiting for the stirring of the water, but I have no man to help me. We need an outside help, an outside source. And so just as an outside source made it bad for all of us, another outside source, God's plan. Salvation through Christ who came at due time, perfect time, can bring salvation to many. Go back quickly to verse 12. Hey, we're going to finish this chapter up, no problem. We're at the, toward the very end. But look, look back verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, some would object to this, wholeheartedly object to this, and they would say, because it says we sinned in Adam, say, wait a minute, I wasn't even there when Adam did this. I didn't exist yet. This was a long time ago. I wasn't even a twinkle in my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's eye. Just, you know, why would that happen? How could all people be under the death sentence in Adam? For the same reason that all people can have salvation through one man's work on the cross. For you to say, well, no, all men aren't separated from God in Adam, you'd have to turn around and say that all men don't have a chance to be saved through Christ. You were back in the garden in the same kind of sense that you were at the cross. The Bible says you were in Christ, and when Christ died, you died, and when Christ rose, you rose. Now, you weren't physically there in the tomb. But it was imputed, the work of Christ to you, just as the, the sin of Adam was also imputed. That makes it possible, listen carefully, for God to save anyone because he places everyone under the death sentence. So anyone could say, Lord, I can't be saved on my own. Would you save me? Yes. And if you trust in me that I'll do it through my son, you'll be saved right now instantly. This is the beauty of salvation. He does a beautiful job in drawing the analogy between the two. Now others would further argue, uh, this isn't fair. It's not fair to be born guilty 
of somebody else's sin. It's not fair. I've had a lot of people tell me, it's not fair. And my response is, it's not also fair for an innocent son of God to suffer for our sins. That's not fair. And if God were to give Adam and Eve what was fair, they would have died immediately after their sin. But because of mercy and grace, God was able to promise the Lamb of God who would come whose blood would take away the sins of the world. Gracious and forgiving, not merely fair. Verse 15 through 21 is where we end tonight. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God. And the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just or ju uh, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. We sort of already touched on that. But where sin abounded, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible, grace abounded much more. Or better translation, overflowed. So that just as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if the previous paragraph answers, how did we get into this mess anyway, through one man, this last paragraph answers, how do we get out of this mess? Same answer, but referring to a different person, by one man. It's the same answer. Grace. We cannot get saved from this mess by voting for the right candidate. If you think you can, you will be very disappointed and eventually be very bitter because it's not going to work. You will not get out of this mess by education. We just need to enlighten these young people. They have it within themselves. It's by social reform. No, it's by the un- merited grace of God and the love of God. I've always loved this. I've quoted it often. It's one of my favorite little quips regarding this. Let a man go to a psychiatrist and he will become an adjusted sinner. Let a man go to a physician and he will become a healthy sinner. Let a man achieve wealth and he will become a wealthy sinner. Let a man join a church, sign a card, and turn over a new leaf, and he will just become a religious sinner. But let a man go in sincere repentance and faith to the foot of Calvary's cross, and what will he become? A forgiven sinner. And that's the heart of this whole passage. It's by one man and his work on the cross. Now, the, the, to sum up that last paragraph, what Paul is saying is everything that Adam did... Jesus undid much more. Did you notice how many times he uses that word, those words, much more? Look in verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Verse 10. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 15. Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man. Verse 17. Much more those who receive abundance of grace. Verse 20, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What this means is that just as Adam acted as the federal head for the human race, Jesus acted as the new federal head, undoing the damage. Much more abounding. 
There's a couple words, and maybe we'll wait till next time to really uncover them. One is the word grace in verse 15, the grace of God, and then it says the gift by the grace of one man. And I'll wait till next time to really uncover that because the rest of Romans will underscore the grace of God. But it basically means God's favor toward unfavorable people, which would be all of us. Unmerited, undeserved treatment. Justice, mercy, and grace. Learn what they are. Justice means you get what you deserve. We hate justice for ourselves. We love it for everybody else, right? You get pulled over by a policeman, you don't want justice. But when somebody speeds past, you go, I wish there was a cop. He needs a ticket. If you get pulled over by a policeman, you've been speeding, and he writes you a ticket, that's justice. You get what you deserve. If he says, sir, ma'am, you were going 20 miles over the speed limit, you're guilty, but I'm not going to give you a ticket. Here's a warning. That's mercy. That's not getting, or that's, yeah, not getting what you deserve, which is a ticket. Grace is different from justice and even mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The cop pulled you over and said, you're guilty, write you a ticket, and he says, I'll pay the fine. <laughs> and it'll go on my record. That's grace. And but it'll never happen, but <laughs> it did happen at the cross, but it won't happen with your local policeman, and it shouldn't. A couple things to close with. How much grace is there? Answer, enough for you, enough for me. Verse 15, the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, notice that word, abounded to many. Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign. Verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace overflowed, or sin or grace abounded much more. Better translation. When sin reached the high water mark, grace overflowed. Picture it like a dam. Um, dams that hold back massive amounts of water. The largest dam in the continental United States is outside of Oroville, California, 700 and some feet tall, mile wide. The tallest dam in the world is in Tajikistan, and it's almost 1,000 feet tall. Impressive. There is no dam that sin can build that God's grace cannot overwhelm and overflow. No matter how far you have blown it, if you want God's forgiveness and mercy and grace, it can overflow your life. Where sin abounded, grace did overflow. In 1492, what happened? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Something else happened. They minted a coin in Spain showing the rock of Gibraltar on it and the words inscribed in Latin underneath, ne plus ultra, no more beyond. What that meant is that's the edge of the world. You don't sail past the rock of Gibraltar, you'll fall off the side of the earth. There's no more beyond this. When Christopher Columbus returned from the other side, he came back with all of the tales of the new world. They had to remint the coin. And they reminted it with the rock of Gibraltar, and they took off the nay. They put plus ultra. There is more beyond. And just when you think, I have used up all of God's grace, I don't think I could ever come back. There's more beyond. There's more beyond. However, it's not automatic. It must be received. It's called a free gift back in verse 15. A gift has to be received. It says that death reigned or held sway. It, it reigned as monarch. For death to reign, you have to be a willing subject. And so you must receive the grace of God. And, and, and simply what all this boils down to mean is this. We've all been polluted from the stream that came from Adam. But there is a stream that comes from Christ that flows from him, his blood that washes away every sin. Like the old hymn that says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, 
and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Just as the contamination flows from Adam, the salvation flows from Christ. And there is more beyond. And so if you're in a place tonight where you need to experience the abounding, overflowing grace of God, the only thing keeping you back is your will.